If you're not familiar where we are this morning, we are up to, we're, we're coming to the end of a special night that Jesus had with his disciples. This is the last night that he was sharing together with them, because this uh, was the last of a three-year ministry that Jesus had on uh, with those disciples, about three years. Jesus, in this last night together, has been teaching his disciples. It's, a, it's like a discipleship intensive, how to be a Christian in the world after Jesus has bodily left. This discipleship intensive had started back in chapter 13, halfway through chapter 13, right after Judas, the betrayer, left. And now it's all taking course. All this teaching that Jesus has been doing is taking course over the the meal that they've been sharing, the Passover meal. Jesus has spoken on many topics, including his mission, the Holy Spirit. He's talked about how you can tell genuine faith, what to expect in a world that is not approving of the way that Christians live and what they believe. He's told them about the hard times that they were going to face. But now Jesus is bringing it all to a close in this prayer. It's a powerful rich prayer, packed full of goodness. And it's been rightly nicknamed the high priestly prayer. It seems like Jesus is taking up an office of a, of a high priest and, and praying on our behalf to God the Father, interceding for his people. But not only is this prayer a culmination of the teaching that Jesus has been doing on that night, it's also a prayer that's, that culminates, uh, that, that, that summarizes a lot of the themes that we've been seeing over the course of the whole book of John. It's a wonderful high point, but the climax of the story is yet to come. So this whole chapter is one prayer, one prayer, but it's divided into three distinct parts. Every time I opened a commentary to see what they said on this, they all said it's divided into three parts. And for a preacher, that's the best news that you can get, is everybody agrees there's three parts, so we get three points, okay? So we've got three parts, and they focus, the prayer focuses on three different areas, and so we're going to look at each focus. The first focus is that Jesus prays for himself, <coughs> We don't get heaps of insight into the way that Jesus prayed, but we do get a few clear moments where it's, it's put on display for the world to see. Because we know that Jesus prayed a whole heap and we don't know what he said. There are whole nights where he was out in the wilderness praying. Yet here, we get the curtains pulled back and we get this front row seat to what is happening when Jesus is praying. We get this front row seat to the relationship that Jesus, the Son, shares with God the Father. And it shows us how to pray. You might think, oh, isn't it a bit weird that Jesus is praying to God? Isn't Jesus God? Does that mean that he's praying to himself? Well, you've got to remember that, that we have one God, as we read in Deuteronomy 6 before, we have one God but he's expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who exist in loving union. Uh, ancient, ancient theologians described it this way. They said, one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. 
They are distinct persons in God, but there is one God in loving relationship. And so what person among us has a deep and close relationship that has no communication? Best mates talk to each other, pen pals write to each other, spouses converse, daughters look for a sympathetic ear in their mothers, fathers grunt knowingly at their sons, siblings chat late into the night when they should really be sleeping. We communicate with those that we love and so too God the Son talks lovingly to his father, he prays to him. And he prays with eyes lifted heavenward. Not, not because God is physically embodied in outer space, but it's a symbol of the fact that God is, in there, is above us and beyond us in the spiritual realm beyond our sight. And so Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven to pray. We're reminded once again that there is not a special uh, um, posture of prayer. But we get different postures of prayer. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. Paul talks about having men lifting holy hands in prayer. But we also get times of prayer that are, 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 are on, the, on our knees and on our faces towards God in humility. But here Jesus, he, in the, he lifts his eyes towards heaven and he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Even from this opening line, there is just so much densely packed in here. Jesus starts by acknowledging that his hour has come. The time is here, the culminating hour of his whole mission that he's been foreshadowing. The hour is not yet, the hour is not yet, but the hour is here. The special hour has arrived. And what is Jesus praying for in this hour? He's praying that God the Father would glorify the Son. Now, you might not understand this, but this is scandalous. Jesus is asking God the Father to give his glory to another. We read in Isaiah, I am the Lord, so I, I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. My glory I give to no other. So, with Jesus asking God the Father to give him his glory, we've got, got to go one of two ways. We're either asking, either we're saying that Jesus is not um, going to have this prayer answered. He's asking for something that can't happen. Or Jesus is God. And God is giving glory to himself in giving glory to the Son. And I think it's pretty obvious which way we're meant to read this. <laughs> this is Jesus God the Son asking God the Father to glorify himself by giving glory to the Son. Giving glory to the Son. But before we kind of move on from that, it's worth wonder, asking the question, what is glory? Because we're going to just talk about glory for a little bit more. What do we mean by the word glory? Um, we, we talk about the glory as, um, as weightiness, heaviness, value. Uh, glory is, uh, is prestige and honour. It's, like, uh, it's like shining, the radiance of the sun. If you see the sun and you see, or perhaps even um, you, you, we had a, a, an eclipse recently, not a total eclipse here, but if you were standing at, uh, at somewhere where you could see the total eclipse, you would have seen the moon go in front of the sun, but you would have still seen 
the outline, like the sun kind of shining around the moon. And in some ways, we could call that like the, the radiance, the, the glory of the sun shining around the moon. And that's something like the glory of God, the glory, the, the radiance of God, the beauty, the, the, the magnificence. It's the emanating wonder and magnificence of God. And now Jesus wants the Father's glory so that he, the Son of God, can glorify the Father. It's almost like it's, it's, a, it's an investment situation. You know, make your investment of glory in me and I will return it to you with profit. God wants to emanate the same glory that the Father has so that if you see the glory of the Son, you see the Father. I think we read something like that recently. But how? How is the Son going to glorify the Father? Well, we know that He's going to glorify the Father at the cross by completing the mission, by uh, securing the atonement, uh, securing the redemption of God's people as He is uh, put on that cross and bears the guilt and shame of all humanity, all humanity in Christ. But we also see it talked about a slightly different way in the following verses. Jesus says, uh, just as or because, so you give the glory to the Son so I can give glory to the Father, just as because you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We could just camp out here all morning, but we're not going to. We, we see some important and powerful things just popping right off the page there. Jesus is given authority over all people, or some of your translations will say all flesh. That's a more literal translation, all flesh. Jesus has authority over all flesh. We know this from uh, the, the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. But here we have it coming again from his own mouth. The Father, you granted the Son authority over all flesh. It's not, it's not a matter of um, uh, Jesus is your God but not mine. Jesus is the God and all people must repent and bow the knee before him and find newness of life in him. It, it is not enough to say that's just, that's just good for you and we'll have, we'll have things differently. No, th this is why Christians go out into the world and take this message out because it is the message that all people need to hear. But why does the Son have all authority over uh, all people? That he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Jesus has come to bring eternal life eternal life to all those that the Father gives to the Son. All those that the Father gives to the Son are God's people, the church, Christians. They are believers. These are the ones who receive this eternal life. These uh, are described as uh, like sheep who are given to the shepherd. And uh, they are described in the Bible as the elect. I know that's a, a word that uh, sends people 
running, but um, that's a word that the Bible uses, and we should use it without flinching, because that's the way that the Scriptures talk. And we get that description here, that there are the people that God has, that God has chosen, these are the ones that He has given to Jesus to receive salvation and eternal life. How can you receive that eternal life? Well, it is given as a gift. It is given as a gift that he might give eternal life. It is not something that you can earn. It's not something that you can reach up to heaven and grab. It's something that Jesus gives as a gift. And how do you receive this eternal life? As it is given as a gift, you receive it through faith. Not just faith in an ethereal force, but faith in a real person, in Jesus Christ, who walked the earth and died in our place and rose in newness of life in defeating death. So some people get a little bit wired up and worried when they start hearing language like elect. And they say, well, how do I know I'm one of the ones that is chosen by God? You're not meant to worry about that. That's not for you to worry about. The, the language of God's chosen people is meant to be an encouragement to you. But what's left up for you to do, what's left to you is to rest in Christ, to have faith. Your faith will be proved genuine as it is worked out. As you walk in faith, you will bear the fruit of faith. You just stick with Jesus. You don't need to worry about whether or not he chose you before the foundation of the world. Worrying about it is not going to change anything. Just find life in Jesus Christ and rest there. But this glory exchange between the Father and the Son is nothing new. Jesus says, I brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. Jesus has already been about the Father's mission the whole time he's been on earth. The Father has been glorified in the work that Jesus has been doing. But now his mission is almost up and Jesus is praying for this return to the Father. Please, Lord, give me the glory that I had with you when I returned to be with you, that I had with you before the world began. So in summary on this first part of Jesus' prayer, Jesus is asking the Father to give him the the Father's glory so the Son can give glory to the Father. How? Through the, completing the mission. Jesus has already been glorifying the Father, but now he's done it through that mission to give eternal life, to save God's people. And afterwards, Jesus will return back to the right hand of the Father where he is right now. In our second section across this uh, this prayer, we see Jesus praying for the apostles. Jesus' prayer for the apostles. There are things about this part of the prayer for the apostles that are relevant to all believers everywhere, but in, Jesus is kind of specifically praying for them here. It's got implications, but he's really focusing on these apostles. And these are the, these are the 12 disciples that Jesus had, minus the one, which is Judas, which we'll get to in a moment. But these guys are going to have a huge impact on God's church, being the founders of God's church, the, the first messengers sent out into the world. And Jesus relates what's happened. He, he, he does a whole bunch of describing in this next section of the prayer, not because God is unaware of what's happened, not because Jesus needs to kind of recap 
um, his, catch up his memory, but he is describing all the things that have happened for the sake of those who are listening in on this prayer, those first disciples, and now us here, many generations removed, we are hearing the content of this prayer. It is for our benefit. Jesus says to the Father, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. So Jesus revealed the Father to the, to the chosen 12 minus one. They're part of the people of, that, uh, the, the people of God that the Father has given to the Son. But they were set aside for a special purpose as founders of the church. And these guys have been given special knowledge as revealed in the last passage. They, now they specially, certainly believe that Jesus is from God. He's not just a mere man. He's not just another teacher or prophet. He is God in flesh. And how do they know that? I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them, and they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So Jesus has been a faithful messenger, passing on all the words that God has given him. And so because of that, these disciples can now believe. They know that the that the Father and, and the Son, the Father has, sorry, the Son has come from the Father. He said everything that God has asked him to say. Jesus has been sharing this truth over many years with them. And so they have grown in faith and they believe now with certainty. And it helps also that there have been many signs along the way that point to the authenticity of this message. But you know what? This is the same for us. This is the same for us removed down through the ages. We come to believe in the same way. We receive the words of Christ, which are from the Father, and we accept them. And we don't just accept them with a, a, a faith of like, oh, I'll just hope that this thing works out. This faith is based on the historical record. This faith is based on the fact that you can't find Jesus' body. This faith is based on the fact that we have the records of all the amazing things that has happened down through the course of history as God has worked in history. We get the words which reveal to us the truth and so we can have faith. This is how it happens for all of Jesus' disciples. As, as Paul said to the Romans, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Jesus keeps outlining the current state of affairs. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. The gl and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus is not just praying for everybody. He is praying for his, uh, his, his 12 disciples here. He's praying for his own, who are the Father's own. And he's praying uh, for these ones that he has given him. We see here the complete unity that there is between God the Son and God the Father. Jesus kind of talks in this future present here and I don't mean that in a technical grammatical sense I just mean that he's talking about things that are about to happen as if they're happening in that moment they're 
or things that are going to happen in the future as if they're happening now. Jesus is leaving as he was regularly warned. And so now he asks the Father to look after his disciples in his, in his absence because while he, I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus has been caring for his disciples and kept them safe, and now he's handing them over to the Father. Father, you please care for them and look after them. All that is except Judas. No surprises there because Judas has rebelled. Judas has rejected the Lord. Judas Judas has betrayed the Lord. And this betrayal, of course, has become so great that the name Judas has become synonymous with traitor. Even though there were, two, there were two Judases in the 12 disciples, but um, the name has been so tarred uh, by these actions that uh, yeah, we, we don't even think of Judas as a good name. But Judas, he made his choice. He chose to rebel. He chose to betray. But even though that's what his actions and his choices were, It was all part of God's plan. It wasn't outside of God's plan. This man, Judas, was doomed to destruction. He was not one of the ones who was given eternal life. But what does it say there? I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. Jesus says these things. Jesus prays these things for his disciples' joy. But now here come the requests that he has. Oh, sorry, before I get there. Jesus says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Jesus has given his uh, disciples the word of God and the world does not like it. But, but why does the world not like the word of God? Why does the world hate those who belong to Jesus? Well, we've talked about this a few chapters ago, but just, I suppose, breaking it down here briefly, remember the fact that what Jesus says, what God requires, is in opposition to the world. If, If the world was to receive the words of Jesus, the world would have to acknowledge that they were on the wrong side. The world would have to humble itself before the Lord. The world would have to say, I'm wrong. God's word points out the guilt and the shame of the world. God's God's word undermines their pride and arrogance. And so, when we become Christians, we come out of the world. But it's not as though we can leave the world. Jesus wants his disciples to stay in the world for a time. And in particular, these apostles... He wanted them in the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. 
So here is Jesus laying out his requests. He's outlined, you know, here's the state of affairs with what's happened, but here are the requests. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. And as we read before in verse 11, keep them in your name. This is his prayers for those disciples. And we saw that that become a reality in the days and weeks and years after Jesus left. What happened? They were protected. They were looked after. They were set apart in the truth. And the truth uh, <laughs> went, went abroad across the known world. They were kept from the evil one. And they were kept by the name of God. And here Jesus closes this second focus of the prayer with this word about him being sanctified. I'm, he says, I'm sanctified. For them, I sanctify myself. You know, he sets himself apart. He's consecrated. He is dedicated to God. Why? So that they too may be truly sanctified. This is, uh, this word, this word sanctify here, or consecrate in some of your translations, is related to the idea of um, whether we get the word saints, the holy ones. Basically saying, for them I am made holy so that they too may be saints. This is what God wants for his disciples. But in this third section, we see that Jesus isn't exclusively praying for those 12 disciples, minus one. He is praying for all disciples. Jesus prays for all of his disciples those who will become disciples through the message that is passed on by that first generation of disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's praying for all of his disciples. So that, that previous section, while it was exclusively for that 12, Jesus is saying, look, I'm not, my prayer is not for them alone. There's implications. He wants the fruit of that to continue. And so I think it is right for us to, to, to claim that prayer for ourselves, that Jesus Christ prays that we would be kept from the evil one in the world, that we would be sanctified in the truth, that we might be kept in Christ's name. But more specifically, as Jesus prays, he continues to pray for the disciples of all, uh, all the people who believe in Jesus. He prays for our collective unity, our collective unity. Now, there's a bit of a, a movement, a desire, I suppose, to have unity amongst all the churches. And it seems like such a noble thing to say. Jesus says, here, I want them to have unity Let's all get together and have unity. Why do we all have to be separate and have our different things going on? But what does Jesus say that their unity is in? What kind of unity is he praying for? It's a unity in Christ that we might be one with God. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity is a unity, yes, a true and real unity, but it is a unity on the basis of Christ and belonging to God. This doesn't mean that 
uh, all the, we all just have to pretend, we have to put on a happy face and pretend that we all get along and that we all believe the same thing. No, there is uh, those who are, we, that we cannot have unity with because they stand apart from Christ. And Paul talks about that. He says in one of his letters, I know that there must be distinctions among you so that your faith may be proved genuine. Yes, we strive for the unity of the body, but when people step away from Christ, we step away and say, we will find our unity in Christ, not just a face value kind of unity. Say we've got the same name on the door. But remember here, we're not talking about like denominations. People get caught up with the fact that there is this denomination and that denomination. That's not what our unity is based on. Some of the warmest and closest unity that I have is with people from several other denominations. Sure, we, uh, we have a different name on the door and we, our convictions are slightly different, but that's not what our unity is based on. Our unity is not based around the, the things that are open-handed, things that we cannot uh, land on the same page as. Our unity is based on Christ. And so please don't feel that um, you cannot have unity with somebody because there is a different name on the door. Our unity is shared and it surpasses these kind of boundaries, these institutional boundaries that we have. We have unity together and unity in God. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus is praying for unity with God. We might have union with him, that it might be our present state to be united to God, a complete, full unity of believers united to God. And so, friends, as we, as we, as we belong to Jesus, we become Christians and we walk, live and walk in faith, this is not something that is just a future hope that one day perhaps maybe we might receive joy in God's presence but even now that we might be united to God that we might be seated with him in the heavenly places as it says in another part of the New Testament even now we are united with him and this is what makes sin so horrible if we belong to God if we are indwelt with by the Holy Spirit, if we are made holy and belong to Him, what place do we have to defile ourselves with sin? What right do we have to do such a horrible thing? We've been set apart for Him. And sin is saying, although I'm set apart from you, I'm going to go and defile this holy place with rebellion. But Jesus desires that we have a full unity with God, a complete unity with one another and with God. Why? So that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The unity that we have with God is to lead to other people, the other people in the world knowing about Christ, that they might know that Jesus is the true Son of God, sent from God, the Messiah, that they might know that Jesus, the love of Jesus has been manifested amongst us. 
Jesus wants us to be with him and to see his glory. And this is probably the part of this whole passage that jumped out to me the most. This part of the prayer. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Do you realize this? I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like uh, Jesus' salvation, Jesus' cleansing that he offers is, a, is begrudging. As if uh, it was like a, he had to do it because there was no other way to save a people for himself. No, he, he, he desires, he longs for us to be with him and to see him as he is. I want those you have given me to be with me. Remember, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you so that you may be where I am. He wants us to dwell with him, to see him in his glory, the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. That is, that is a future hope that is worth that is worth um, all the trials and tribulations that we could face in this world. We can endure it all because we know that we, that Jesus desires to bring us home to be with him in glory. Jesus is closing the prayer with a pledge. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known to them in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So there's a, there's a couple of little um, words here that we've just got to straighten out. It says, um, I have made you known to them. The them here he's talking about is the disciples. I've made you known to my disciples, and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. Jesus will continue to make the Father known. This is not something that finishes when Jesus leaves. It's not like when Jesus is crucified, it's all over, and now uh, the Father doesn't get made known anymore. No, this is something that Jesus is continuing down to the present day. In this very room, right now, Jesus is making the Father known. How? Through the word of God. This word that he has given us. So that the love of God and God himself will be with his disciples. That is a wonderful blessing. So what? what where do we go from here? It's hard to summarize all of this deep and wonderful truth into a few kind of takeaway bite-sized morsels. But I'm, I'm going to try. The Father is asked by Jesus to give him his glory so that he can glorify the Father. Jesus has already and always been glorifying the Father, even from before the world began, but now he's doing it through the mission to give eternal life to God's people, the ones that God has given to the Son. But Jesus is going away. He's going to return to the Father's presence, but he will present, in the Father's presence, he will await to return to judge the living and the dead as we know from other passages we see that jesus is outward focused in bringing god glory 
by saving people through the truth, God's word that Jesus brought to his people. And Jesus desires that God's people have unity with one another. God desire, Jesus desires that we would be protected and we'd be kept safe till we can come to him in glory. Jesus desires us to be with him there and to see his glory. And Jesus' mission of making the Father known has not yet come to an end, but it continues even here this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful truths, truths that are so great that we can barely, uh, we can barely scratch the surface in, in reading through this prayer. But we pray, Lord, that um, you might open us, open our eyes to behold this, so that um, as this prayer has been captured here for our benefit, that we might gr benefit from it, and we might grow in, in faithfulness. We might grow in appreciation and in love, and that we might give you good glory. Lord, we ask that you would honor this prayer of Jesus. Not that we have any doubt that you have heard it and that you and that you are honoring it, as we have seen down through the ages, but Lord, it is our hope and our desire that that this would continue. Please, Lord, keep us and protect us. Please, Lord. Give us full unity with one another and with you. Please grow our unity. Please, Lord, bring us to see Jesus' glory, to be with him. And please, Lord, continue to make your name known in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.